0: Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast dedicated to ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Everyone knows what art is, but how do you define it? This week's episode, What is Art?, looks at the ways that people define art and what it means to be an art historian. So when I ask people the question, what is art?, I get all kinds of answers. Self-expression, creativity, poetry, music, painting, sculpture, photography, architecture, dance, theater, film, sports, fashion, communication, entertainment, aesthetics. Oh, my word, the list goes on. Stanford's online dictionary of philosophy has an entire article dedicated to the question, what is art? It never finds a satisfactory answer. Some people I've talked to say art is everything, which is a lame answer, or art is anything, which is likewise lame. The problem is they're not wrong why aren't they wrong? The answer lies in the history of making things, in the relationship between art and craft. Now, this is a relationship that a lot of people don't necessarily think about when they think about art. They think about stuff that you go to a museum and see, not the crochet that your grandma makes Afghan after Afghan out of. Nevertheless, there is a relationship between the two. So here we go. To craft something, is to make something, right? A boat, a house, a wall, a cathedral, dress painting, blah, 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 blah. the list goes on. If you want to learn how to build, let's say boats, where do you start? You could always just go out and experiment with various materials and shapes until you get something that floats on water, but that would take forever. There are plenty of people who know how to build boats, so go online, find a tutorial, make a boat that way. It might not be the best boat ever. You are practically guaranteed to make a mistake or three. But in the end, you will probably have a boat, and it will float. There is, of course, a more efficient way. Find yourself a teacher, an expert, and become that person's apprentice. As an apprentice, you start off at your master's workshop. There, you do menial tasks, like sweeping the floor and putting the tools away for as long as it takes, getting used to the atmosphere of the workshop and the way things are done there. During this time, you are also getting an idea of how boat building works, what wood gets used and why, what tools get used for what applications, how it gets set up, what can go wrong, what needs to go right, and so forth. Sooner or later, you start getting to help build the boat yourself and your master teaches you as you go along. When he decides that you are competent enough to make your own boat, he sends you on your merry way. You have just graduated to journeyman boat builder. As a journeyman, you are pretty good at your job. You can build a serviceable boat and it won't sink. You might get a job at another boat building shop with a different master who needs the skills that you've learned. That's cool, you now get a lot of practice building boats. And you may learn new skills under this new master, too. You get so familiar with boats and the principles of boat building that you can transform almost anything into a boat, and your boats are not just objects that float on water. They are really cool objects that float on water. Eventually, you decide that you want to make the best boat possible. So you spend all of your time, all of your energy, and pour your heart and soul into building the best boat ever. Then you take it to all of the other masters of your craft in the area and say here's my fabulous boat. If they agree that this is a really fabulous boat, you become a master yourself and are allowed to set up your own shop. The master boat builder is as comfortable with his tools and materials as a poet is with language. Let's think about language for a minute. The first thing we have to learn is vocabulary. Words and sounds are the raw materials of communication. Putting these words and sounds together into sentences is the next step. Learning grammar follows, and perhaps also learning to read and write. Some people master all these skills and then, because they can, they learn to make words do something else. Listen to the two following examples. The first example is a straightforward piece of prose massacred by yours truly. The second example was written by one of my absolute favorite poets of the 20th century, Robert Frost. There are two ways that the world could end, in a heat wave or in nuclear winter. Although I think a heat wave is more likely, nuclear winter is still a very real possibility. A straightforward piece of communication that discusses two ways the world could end. Yeehaw. Now listen to Robert Frost. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great, and would suffice. Robert Frost has transformed a straightforward piece of communication into something more, into images and thoughts and feelings and metaphors, into poetry. A master is one who understands the tools of his trade so well that he can transform a simple communication into art. Let's say you are an ancient Greek person and you have just bought a vase made by the famous potter and vase painter Exekius. Exekius is awesome. He is so good at what he does, his vases aren't just pots to put things in. They are beautiful pots to put things in. Their shapes are pretty and he paints stories on them that are just cool to look at. His stuff is so popular that other face painters copy it and copy it and copy it and copy it some more. They get copied so much he starts signing his stuff so that you know that you're getting Ezekiel's work and not somebody else's. This is actually pretty rare in the ancient world. Not very many people sign their stuff. Now, what are you going to do with your beautiful, amazing vase by the famous vase painter, Ezekius? Are you going to store last season's olive oil in it and throw it in a corner? (laughs) I hope not. Hopefully, if you have any sense at all, you're going to take care of your precious new vase. Maybe even deciding that it will only ever be used for display. So you put it away on a shelf or on a hook where it can be admired by everybody who comes into your house. Thus, a really ironic thing happens. The vase is so well made, you don't want to use it. It has become art. And the person capable of making that amazing thing is, naturally, an artist. This, then is the historic distinction between craft and art. Craft is functional. Art transcends functionality and becomes expressive. In the modern world, when mass production is standard, well-made objects are a given. What is left, then, for the artist to do? The answer to that question may well lie in the whatever it is that transcends functionality, that thing that speaks from one human being to another and becomes expressive. Artists have been chasing after this, whatever it is, since the Industrial Revolution, actually since the invention of photography which made painting wonder what it was going to do next. Now, if you have ever been to an art museum, you may have noticed that the vast majority of art is painting and sculpture, even though I just told you that any craft can be transformed into art. You may also have heard people distinguish between fine art and decorative art, There's a reason for this, and it deals with the importance of stories. Stories tell us who we are, where we come from, give us role models and examples of what to do and what please not to do. They explain our relationship with the world around us. We tell stories and we hear stories from the time we are very, very young. Sometimes we get bored, and so our teachers try to make the important stories a little more exciting. The easiest way to make a story more exciting is to act it out. When you see something happen, it's easier to remember. And this is where theater begins. But what happens when the play is over? This is when painting and sculpture come in handy. Painting and sculpture capture a visual moment in a story's timeline and preserve it forever. They require no specialized knowledge to understand, other than the ability to remember the story that they tell. As a result, they are the easiest things to recognize as being art. That is why they get called the fine arts. Everything else, no matter how amazing it is, often gets lumped under the label decorative art. Now, that doesn't mean that all useful objects are only decorative. Remember Ezekiel and his glorious vases that are pretty clearly art. Greek vases and vase paintings often get treated as fine art, even though they were once primarily functional objects. Nor does the distinction between fine art and decorative art mean that all painting and sculpture qualify as art simply because they tell stories. Think about it. The craft of painting or sculpture is to tell a story. So it does its job if it tells a story. When does it become art? When it does something more. When it expresses something that goes above and beyond the story that it tells, then it becomes art. Of course, this is a rather personal thing. What says art to one person might say piece of garbage to somebody else. We see that most clearly in a lot of people's reactions to modern and contemporary art. And I have to admit, I have been just as guilty of this as anybody else. So my mom absolutely loves modern and contemporary art and always has. Uh, And so, you know, being raised around all of this abstract and expressionist art and people who absolutely adore it and love it, Uh, I would get sent to museums and people would rave about, well, let's say Picasso. And I'd look at it and go, "Uh uh-huh, whatever. Didn't speak to me. If it didn't look like a book illustration, I didn't care. There's a reason I study the ancient world. Well, here's the thing. You don't get to study art without having to run into a lot of art that you might not particularly like. So I had to figure out what was important about modern and contemporary art. So I tried. And I studied it. And I started getting it. I started understanding what makes Picasso interesting and why Cezanne matters. And all of the people that my mom thinks are really, really awesome. I said, okay, I I get what they're doing technically, but it's not hitting me in the feels at all. (coughs) Then one day... And I am ashamed to say it was a long time later. Uh, I was prepping for a lecture that I was going to be giving on modern and contemporary art, and I came across one of Barnett Newman's zip paintings. It's his Cathedral, painted in 1951. Now this painting, (laughs) it's huge, number one. Um, A lot of his zip paintings are really large, and it's just blue. It's this huge expanse of my absolute favorite color of Midnight Blue. And it's divided in the middle by a single zip, a single line of white. I could stare at this painting forever. It is abs- It speaks to me on a level I can't even begin to explain. And that was the moment that I finally understood modern and contemporary art. And I got, my mom is so in love with it. So, you can't say, or it's very difficult to say, that one thing is art and another thing isn't art simply because it does or does not speak to you personally. You can say that you like it or that you don't like it, but you don't get to determine whether or not it's good. Now, let's take a moment to talk about architecture. We can look at architecture as being just shelter. But again, that's the craft of building stuff. A building does its job when it protects the inhabitants from the elements. Wind, rain, sun, heat, cold, what have you. Buildings can also, however, be seen as really, really big sculptures. And they function in kind of the same way. So, in the 12th century, a medieval monk, uh, actually he was an abbot named, uh, we call him Abbot Sujet, It's spelled S-U-G-E-R. He decided, uh, he's living in France, he's deciding that he doesn't like the churches that he's familiar with. They're big, drafty, dark. They have just a couple of windows and they're lit primarily by torches and candles. And yeah, okay, it works, but he's not a fan. Uh, These churches are very good at providing shelter for pilgrims and monks. They're huge and monumental and massive. But he's running into a lot of issues uh, at the time, and he decides that he wants something new. He wants a church that looks like heaven. So he goes to his local master mason and says, I want a church that looks like heaven. I want it to be full of light. That means I need windows absolutely everywhere. Churches at that time didn't do windows absolutely everywhere. But the master mason, being a master of his craft, said, hmm, windows absolutely everywhere. And he thinks about all of the stuff that he knows, all the techniques and all of the tricks of the trade. And he goes, yeah, actually, we can do that. And so he invents Gothic architecture. Now, architecture doesn't just tell you a story the way sculpture or painting does. It makes you a living character in the story. Stories, after all, think about it, they have to take place somewhere. Plays and movies use sets to define where the action of a story takes place. And as they do that, they also tell you something about who the people are. A character from a low-class background is going to be living in a poor section of town, and a character from a wealthy background is going to be living in a palace. In the same way, skyscrapers, houses, neighborhoods, and gardens, and parks, and roads, and cities, they all tell us who we are and how we fit into our society. That was why Abbot Sujet wanted his church to look like heaven. He wanted everyone who came into his church to know that just like they were welcome there, they'd be welcome in heaven too. He wanted them to get a prequel, a a little foretaste of what heaven was like. Now, I haven't talked about photography or installation art or performance art or fashion or ephemera like posters and advertisements and greeting cards. All of these are also part of art history. Indeed, although art history is traditionally categorized as the study of painting, sculpture, and architecture, it's probably more accurate to say that art historians deal with two-dimensional objects, three-dimensional objects, and built or constructed environments. Art historians also study the people who make these things, the people who buy and use these things, and the societies that produce the people who make and buy and use the things. As a result, Any student of art history will eventually run into every single branch of science, every kind of literature, varying concepts of religion and philosophy, and often multiple versions of history. If that sounds a little overwhelming, it is. Art history encompasses the entirety of the human experience. Uh, But that's what makes art history cool. This has been an episode of Pieces of Art a podcast dedicated to ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening!